Welcome to Archonic Sessions, episode 76. I'm Amelia, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna and Ken. This week, we'll be discussing the latest renderings for Peter Zumtor's redesign of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. And we've got a brand new segment to introduce later in the show. Before we get started, though, we have an item of business to attend to. This week's podcast is sponsored by AAA Advantage partner BQE Software and the makers of ArchiOffice. ArchiOffice is the only office and project management software built with the needs of architects in mind. It will help you manage people and projects while you focus on designing great architecture. Our podcast listeners can get a fully functional 15-day trial of ArchiOffice at www.bqe.com slash Archonnect. That's www.bqe.com slash Archonnect. All right, with that business taken care of, let us commence with the discussion of the LACMA redesign renderings. These recently came out within the last week or so. Nicholas Cordy on our site posted the new renderings released by Zumtor's office, as well as um, a basic rundown of the project specs on this new website that LACMA has produced specifically to float the ideas for the for Zumtor's redesign. And it's been pretty universally received as undercooked and dissatisfying to a lot of people that these renderings are either just technically not very impressive, as Zumtor being an architect who has classically kind of eschewed that model of, of visualization where he doesn't do those sleek computer-generated renderings, but instead prefers to make incredibly tactile models that are then photographed really beautifully. And that's kind of, the, those are the images that we've kind of seen dominating for this project up until this point, for the most part. These kind of sandstone colored basic sculptures out in the LA landscape to kind of show the undulating black blob that is Zumter's design for the new LACMA campus. So Donna and Ken, after seeing these new redesigns come out and reading Christopher Hawthorne's take on it as well, published in the LA Times, what were your guys' kind of first responses to these new renderings? Ken, why don't you go first? Oh, fine. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I was just thumbing through uh, a lot of the renderings that I've seen online of previous works by Zumther and and his books. And it shouldn't really come as any surprise, but it doesn't seem like the the computer is is a visual technique that he often uses for demonstrating what the spaces will look like or what his intent is, his design intent for most of his projects. And in fact, I couldn't find, um, it seems like a lot of the renderings that are generated, computer generated renderings are done by students, you know, looking at his work and trying to just develop their 3D skills for uh, rendering techniques. So, and if you look at his book, I mean, all of his books, they're just plain. They're just very ordinary flat slabs, very monolithic looking. And I kind of have a sense that somebody at LACMA said, hey, you know, that technique doesn't really play here in the States. It might go well with your fancy teetotalers over there in Europe, but over here in America, <laughs> let's see renderings that show like, like <laughs> dirigibles and and, yeah. <laughs> and we need to see like fireworks and we need to see people and we need to see, you know, we need to see scale and we need to see all these. We don't care too much for your hand-drawn, beautifully done watercolor renderings that just don't really fly with an American public that sees that Lady Gaga on their TV screen day in and day out or whoever the next flavor. (laughs) I actually hate renderings in and of themselves because they promise too much. They always Mm overpromise and they never deliver. So I think that he's kind of meeting them a little bit halfway and kind of feeling his way, what's acceptable to him as a visual representation of what he's trying to get across, but trying to kind of make this, you know, this 
realizing that the project is a little more public than uh, he's probably used to. It seems like a lot of his work doesn't have the kind of investment and the kind of oversight that this project has. So I think it, it strikes me that this is a, in his mind, probably a reasonable middle ground that I think if we look at these renderings and try to say that this is what the project, the end result will look like, I think we're either too stupid and should just get out of the profession or just, you know, overly, uh, we should reassess our, what we expect from a rendering. And maybe this will set us on the new path, which is kind of, you know, play down the visuals and kind of really be focused on what's important. Instead of making America great again, we can actually, you know, do the things that actually make America great again, which is building nice buildings and having great spaces. So all show and no go is kind of the, you know, what seems to attract more people. And I want to see the go and not the show. You know, as I said on the on the thread about this news item, I have faith that Zumthorpe will produce a beautiful building. I mean, I you know, I, I know enough about his work. I've never been to one in person, but I know enough about his work that I know that there is talent and skill and great poetry behind the presentation here, even if it's not showing up in that presentation. So that said, I can go ahead and slam on these renderings as much as I want to, because I do have faith that we will see a better piece of architecture than these renderings show. I think it's really telling that Christopher Hawthorne said that the renderings were produced in part to meet deadlines for an environmental impact report. And I'm sure we've all worked in firms where we said, oh my God, you know, we've got this deadline, just draw this part that's important really well. And then just, you know, put some trees over the part that we that won't really show because <laughs> we, we haven't quite resolved that yet. We don't quite know how it's going to happen, but we have to meet the deadline. What I laugh the most at though is, you know, Zumtor is known for the quality of materials. All of his buildings look like they just want to be touched because the craftsmanship and the, the materials are allowed to sing their own song. And yet it looks like in these renderings, he just, you know, kind of grabbed the nearest SketchUp tile or brick. What do they even call it in SketchUp? You know, rendering that to put on it. It's like a photograph of a stone wall. And it just looks really just dorky. I mean, they look they look terrible. <laughs> they really look like, you know, first year architecture student renderings when they're just learning how to use SketchUp. I mean, I I went and visited a high school summer program of architecture students a week ago, and they were using SketchUp more skillfully than these <laughs> renderings show. So, you know, I, I, the renderings are, they kind of crack me up because in a way they're so, they're, they're really not trying. They're not trying at all in a lot of ways, I think. I think some of the most interesting design details referenced specifically in this new redesign that are kind of coming up now more specifically than they had been before is one, the fact that the pedestals that, that are being called pavilions that will support the structure in certain points and enable it to cross Wilshire, which is one of the other major changes, is that the building will now span the entire Wilshire Boulevard and go across the street, which is, I think, pretty cool and to a lot of people really onerous. But that the columns, these giant columns supporting that over overhang will actually be both like potentially exhibition space, but also like retail space for museum stores or, or what have you. And I think that is something that is like completely uh, given kind of washed over in these renderings. So you don't really see exactly how that would work. And while it's referenced by Christopher Hawthorne specifically, that there's going to be kind of an opening up of those what look like complete concrete bunker kind of style pillbox supports, they'll actually be opened up on the northern side with glass to face presumably the mountains and the Hollywood Hills. So that that would be like incredibly interesting thing to meet the ground if there is this importance of the opening up of the public space, because one of the major other major changes being and one of the major details that people are really arguing about is the fact that there's an overall reduction of square footage in the museum. Because in order to build the Sumtor project, four of Lachmas buildings on the campus will be 
completely razed and the Sumtor building will take them over to house the permanent collection. And whether or not that actually means that there'll be less exhibition space isn't entirely clear. We just know that they'll go from approximately 393,000 to 25,000 square feet less. So it's kind of like, we don't know exactly how that space will be put to use, but you think less is hard to make more in this context, especially when the um, building isn't going to be as many stories and it has this more like meandering horizontal feel to it. So I think that it's it's going to be really interesting. A few of these other details that we just are that are kind of these cornerstones of the design, but and, and also the actual operations of the museum, but we haven't been able to actually see yet. Exactly. And I, I wanted to point to back in April a year ago when a f- earlier batch of renderings were put out, the LA Review of Books had this article by Joseph Giovannini called Peter Zumthor at Lachma, A Preacher in the Wrong Church, in which he lists this really wonderful, just ongoing list of questions that have not been answered yet. And they still, in my mind, have not been answered yet by this next iteration of renderings, which are, you know, things like, where is the loading dock? Where will parking go? How will school children come in? And those are all really good questions. And again, Being an architect, I know that we think about those things even if we don't show them. So I have faith that Zumtor's team will make those things all work. But the question of how we're getting less space now than there used to be, that can't really be defined as a valid question yet because we don't know what the displacement of functions is. You know, there may end up being more exhibition space and a great reduction in the space needed for things like staff and, and curatorial and support for the gift shops, all of those things, you know, because of how museums are changing in their function, those things just may not need to be as spacious as they used to be. And so more of a percentage of the square footage may be given over to art exhibition. And I'm really intrigued by the notion of sort of meandering amongst the arts that that could be something cool. But I also think that the lower, you know, the space under this entire building floats. So the space under the floating plane is not represented well, again, in the renderings, but in LA's climate, the notion of a large shaded outdoor space can act as programmatic space for all of the kinds of things that museums are doing these days. You know, art, uh, we have a monster, a drawing rally at the Indianapolis Museum of Art that draws a bunch of people and artists. And it's all very programmed event type space rather than just the quiet connection with a piece of art in a plain white box gallery. So I'm interested in it in that way. I don't think the, the lower amount of square footage is necessarily something to get up in arms about yet. Ken, what do you think? Uh, I'm just looking at the uh, the site map, and it's kind of <laughs> interesting to me where the one uh, parking structure is defined is way away from the building. And, you know, yeah, but the, the, the building really seems to be more about the park than it, about really connecting with that um, that parking structure. And there is a parking lot over in the, uh, the was it, the northeast uh, corner of the site. I should add that, just to, to make clear, that the construction schedule plans to have the LACMA open or the redesign be open to the public almost at exactly the same time as this also currently under construction metro line that will be opening a stop directly across from the LACMA campus mm-hmm. in current statement. So the idea being, I think, with the relocation of parking, that they can actually afford to do that with an increased public transit access to the actual museum. I mean, because it's kind of insane that this major east-west corridor, the, the the ultimate corridor of Los Angeles, cutting across the east-west corridor of Los Angeles, isn't completely dotted with metro lines. And this is obviously a huge opportunity for the museum to not only increase ridership, but increase just touristic access to the museum. So you're saying up down Wilshire, there's going to be a, there's going to be a stop along along Wilshire. Well, it's fun actually that we're talking about at the Olympics, but there's yeah, there's currently being constructed <laughs> a um, an expansion of one of the current metro lines to head 
further west from downtown along Wilshire partially and then up to like the Brentwood area near UCLA. But the idea being that this Miracle Mile, this museum row kind of place would be the one of the major stops for the new metro. You know, I guess I go back to, you know, when I'm thinking about Zumthor and, and looking at his body of work, it, it hardly seems like this architect is not caring you know, because he doesn't answer Don Giovanni's uh, questions. That's Joseph Giovannini, oh. but I like the uh, I like the implication of Don Giovanni. <laughs> That's that works. <laughs> um, but um so I have a, you know, again, I just have a feeling that this particular individual works in a different way than mm-hmm. most American architects and most planning boards and most, you know, any of these other boards that are, have oversight are used to dealing with. And I just think, yeah. you know, I don't know what to say to that. I mean, other than, you know, I you pick this guy. Look, nobody changed those processes in those other buildings that he's completed and come out with a, a, a better result from having done so. And again, you know, I keep going back to this because I think it's 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 apropos to a situation much like this, is that if you want a horse, let the guy design the horse. If you don't want a camel, don't be, you know, finagling with the design too much. Don't let all these people get involved. And, and there's too many, too many critics, too many architects, too many people who just don't know what the hell they're talking about. And if you want a horse, don't involve these people because if you do, you're just going to end up with a camel. And exactly. Honestly, I mean, I'm trusting that this guy knows what he's doing. This would be a curious sort of um, long form research article, maybe. But I'm curious what the process was with the Bruce Goff building there at uh, on the campus, because it is such an idiosyncratic and bizarre building. I really wonder if when he proposed this, he sort of went through any of this, these similar kind of finaglings around building committees and, and reporters wanting certain questions answered. And he was just trying to be an artist doing his work. And, you know, my first question when LACMA said they were going to do a new edition was, will the Goff building remain or not? Because it's just fantastic. It's so odd and quirky and such a artistic piece in and of itself, which I'm not always a fan of the buildings of museums being a piece of art themselves. But in this case, it's it's a wonderful one. So yeah, it'd be funny to see what the the sort of historic documentation of that process was like. Amelia, you want to write an article on architect for that? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm I'm actually yeah, I'm just very interested to see because given that the Zumto redesign is going to get rid of like a handful of Pereira buildings that are currently yeah. on the campus, I think it'll be really interesting to see how this new conglomeration of buildings then interact with one another, especially given the overwhelming presence of the Zumto redesign that it's this giant snaking thing that has been likened to both the neighboring tar pits for its like inky black ink blot, I believe was one of the previous metaphors that people used to describe it, as well as the fact that underneath, and this is not <laughs> dissuaded, this feeling is not dissuaded by this recent the recent renderings that we've seen, that underneath the building feels very much like a freeway overpass, that, <laughs> especially given the kind of minimalist lighting that I could be like either, and I don't mean that in a like a grungy, you know, opiate addiction kind of way. I mean that in a like very romantic kind of engineering marvel kind of way, mm-hmm. that especially given LA's climate, having those these big open areas for consistent shading, I think Donna, as you mentioned before, will also open up interesting opportunities. But then, yeah, how it can play with the public space and and things like the Goff Pavilion, I think will be really interesting and kind of hard to imagine exactly at this point, especially because you have other things on the LACMA public grounds that, of course, will be changing. But things like Levitated Mass, which is this giant installation of a mm-hmm. what is effectively a um, boulder, a giant boulder hanging over a um, stair ditch that visitors can walk underneath. And so you're effectively 
underneath a giant so-called levitated mass. And that, of course, won't be there forever necessarily, or perhaps it will. I will double check that for the show notes. But that these other kind of more pavilion or more like punctuated moments along in the public space on the LACMA campus will have different ways to interact with his umptor design. I think that'll be really fascinating. So Amelia, just a point of clarification, the, the tar pit that is you know, the Bruce Goff Pavilion in many ways responds to and that supposedly Zumtor's building was inspired by. Are there just tar pits like all over LA or is this, kind of, <laughs> or is this really a, a moment of, again, this weird idiosyncratic, let's just keep the tar pit because it's cool? Well, so, okay, I'm a little bit beyond my depth here, but I do know that the particular tar pits, the Liberated tar pits, are one of the most rich areas for uncovering certain fossils. So it's a protected site for that reason, because there are constant digs going on there and people are going and archaeologists are finding stuff there and they, and also having the opportunity to open it up to, to tourists and the nearby Page Museum, which kind of goes into the archaeological history of the site, along with the requisite like woolly mammoth uh, <laughs> informational videos and that kind of stuff. So that's directly next to LACMA, which I feel like a lot of people... It's it's not necessarily the most apparent, but it's also just a completely different museum. So people probably go for one or the other. But that's why that that is never going to go away. And that's kind of its special occupation. But I think that there is a history of these pits underneath the ground in L.A. in this particular area. I don't know exactly how far spread they are, mm-hmm. but that would be very interesting to see exactly how how there might be other areas in L.A. with a similar kind of topology. I mean, I think you could argue that saying my building is inspired by a tar pit would be a really far reach if this tar pit in particular were not something that was important and adjacent and <laughs> ongoing and, and stable and going to be there forever. You know, to just say, ooh, tar pit, cool. Everyone would just think, oh, you're an architect that likes black. That was your inspiration. <laughs> yeah, good point. I can see how from someone who isn't in LA directly, it's it's kind of like a, huh, yeah, okay, Zumtor, whatever. <laughs> like, let's, let's just go with this. It's novel, sure. But no, it's it's very much like a, an, a, um, an icon of the area and something mm-hmm. that is not going away anytime soon. Yeah. So there's some other details about the project that I think are also worth mentioning before we kind of move on to some other things. But particularly, I wanted to refer back to something that I think, Donna, you mentioned this before, is that the exhibition space is being referred to as these meander galleries, which in Christopher Hawthorne's piece, he describes them as part of the potential surface area for exhibitions, but we're not exactly sure how they'll be used. But the idea in these meander galleries is that they could be both for exhibiting art and also as just kind of a resting area for people walking, circulating but also benches along the edge will be able to just be used by anyone at any time. This is something that I think is really interesting and overall something that plays into something that was referenced at the beginning of this project being unveiled, which was the idea that at least this is something that Michael Govan, the director of LACMA, was kind of pushing is this, this idea in future museum design or our museum design is that circulation is a huge issue and they don't want to have, they don't want to rely on the system of one ticket at one gate and one juncture where everyone is coming through. And there may be specific pavilions with specific special exhibitions that you pay a separate ticket price to, such was the case with the um, Frank Gehry exhibition last summer. But the idea being that if you have this longer, more, uh, I'd say, multiple access museum that uh, visitors can enter at any different entrance and have through some advancement and, you know, ticket purchasing, either whether it's all online or something like that, be able to go through without passing through one singular threshold. And the idea in this is that being that everyone can experience the museum along the same track through these meandering circulating pathways but that you can enter that pathway at any moment. So you're less about, from a museum and exhibition design perspective, perhaps the idea is that you are less required to see certain pieces of art 
by the way that they are situated within the museum and, and how close they are to the entrance or how far they are from the entrance, no longer being so much of a determination of the stuff that is the most seen, which I think is pretty interesting, especially given that this is still for the permanent collection. So it's not for like so much of the temporary exhibitions that will come through. What do you guys think of these meandering gallery possibilities? The way you just described it, Amelia, this notion that, that uh, you can come in in multiple locations and not necessarily follow the same track every time you visit, that's actually a pretty fascinating. And in my experience as someone who's been working in a museum for the last four years, that's a pretty radical approach. And I think it's actually a very cool one. And I do enjoy this notion of the meandering galleries where you just you, you just follow along and you don't feel that sense of, oh my God, what if I missed something? You know, that you're just mm -hmm. sort of following along and seeing what comes up. One of the things that confused me in the Hawthorne article was, maybe I read it in the Hawthorne article or maybe it was in the comments, that supposedly there are also these galleries called chapel galleries and galleries called cabinet galleries. And so first of all, I just have to point out that the labeling of all these spaces by a, a capitalized name just reminds me of the movie The Architect, where apparently he designs sleeping spaces, not bedrooms. <laughs> these, are, these are the cabinet <laughs> galleries. These are the, the, the sleeping spaces. But the article seemed to say that the renderings really just showed the cabinet galleries which were not these high-ceilinged spaces. But some of the renderings show some really high-ceilinged spaces. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if there are any that are going to get even taller than that, and I'm guessing not. But the the, the sort of categorization of these different bases, it, it, again, to me, is a, is a pretty interesting notion. You know, I think, I think they're, they're, despite the terrible renderings, I think there really could be some, some pretty cool um, new ways of looking at art in this space. So, Ken, do you agree? I do. I too. Um, you know, I, I really like um, when you walk into a museum that you're kind of set on a path and you kind of have an expectation of what you're going to see. I like the idea of being able to go back to a space and kind of, oh, I didn't go in that way. What wonder how my experience is altered. I wonder how I'm affected by the representation of time and based on just the one piece of work versus another. You know, so I'm interested in that that kind of craziness um it seems a little more with my um with just my brain i don't you know i tend to kind of zone out if i'm kind of you know, doing a kind of process and kind of titillated and excited when i'm kind of challenged oh wait i didn't expect that or you know and coming in a mm -hmm. different way kind of makes me feel that that would be something very interesting and again i, I just go back to what i said before about the renderings I've seen enough of the work and I've seen enough of the drawings that, you know, it's interesting when you look at Haydock's drawings and it, he had moved from very, very technical and very precise in his Texas houses, very kind of the precision minded in that series of drawings to something very much not that. And in his masks and in his later works, very much more experiential that I'm glad he's not here to experience this kind of, and not saying that he would ever have designed something of this scale, but that pressure of what uh, architects need to jump, the hoops they have to jump through to kind of satisfy different constituencies. So I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I looked at the work, I've seen his work, and despite what I think of him as, a, as an individual, I'm pretty much satisfied that, uh, <laughs> you know, what I know of the of the work and just the little I've seen, and, you know, you can't get his books. They're really hard to find. They're expensive. And see a rendering online, you're kind of like, wow, that is tells me more than a computer rendering can ever do. Yeah, I think at this point, Zumtor is definitely banking on the less is more kind of showing thing. Is like even if these renderings are crappy, <laughs> they fulfill the need they ha that they're given at that time, which is just to fulfill the environmental impact report. And 
yes, everyone in LA is going to be scrutinizing these and getting really angry over certain details of them. But ultimately, it's not making any particular or any too drastic promises as to what will actually be delivered. So we'll keep looking for details. And of course, there's going to be more information coming out shortly. There's going to be a public meeting at LACMA in a couple of weeks with some more details after Zumtor uh, does a workshop at LACMA. I believe he's actually in LA this week meeting with LACMA officials to kind of work through some of these issues. So we will keep posting as soon as we get stuff about it. One other thing I just wanted to mention about this is just kind of throw it out there um, as a point of discussion. I'm not really sure exactly how relevant it is necessarily, but um, one more note about this LACMA redesign I think is really interesting is just to think about it in the context of the conversation conversations that people were having about the MoMA expansion as it was taking over the space of the former Folk Art Museum. And the renderings that were released by Dilersky Fidio and Renfro of their expansion, really prioritizing these huge open gallery spaces, the so-called like white cube. I'd say you can maybe even combine the cabinet and gallery distinctions to describe them because they were just huge, open, very tall ceiling. And there, the supposed idea um, and justification from DSNR was that they don't really know where art is going, where modern art is going to lead us and what kind of pieces and or objects or installations or performances or whatever would have to be exhibited in that space. And so they're kind of trying to, I guess, hedge their bets and create something that is ideally have some degree of flexibility, but also just very open. And I think that's an interesting comparison to what Sumtor is doing here with LACMA and how the LACMA team are kind of trying to anticipate what the future of museum exhibitions will be and what kind of patronage it will require and, and exactly who will be visiting these spaces. So it's just something that as those both those projects on either side of the U.S. kind of develop, it's something that I feel is like, even if it's not, there's really no direct reason to compare the two other than the fact that they are the big museums in L.A. and New York. But th- there is something interesting happening here with museum design that we will keep our finger on the pulse of. So that's half of my just two cents about that, about the Zumdor redesign. And we will, as I said, keep you guys updated. But now I'd like to move on to a fresh somewhat experimental segment that we're going to try out for the first time this week on our Connect Sessions, which is just going to be called the ranting segment for now until we find a more <laughs> <laughs> palatable um, title if if, should, if one should arrive. And we just wanted an opportunity to kind of give the floor to each co-host to talk about a subject that they feel passionate about this week, whether that's an article on our Connect or just a topic or a news piece or, or what have you. So let's get to the ranting. We'll give each co-host a minute or two of unadulterated airtime to, uh, yeah, just have their say. And I think, Ken, this particular segment, if not born with you in mind, certainly has you in its spirit. So let's give, let's give you the floor. Go ahead. Go on your rant. <laughs> well, um, my, um, my rant is really about uh, the Reba election of, I think his name is Ben Derbyshire. You know, it wasn't too long ago that uh, there was another election for a particular position inside Ariba in which diversity, sexism, you know, you name it, all of these charges came at Reba. And, and I understand that only elect who decides to run for a particular position. However, the, the question does remain is that what is what is the what is Reba doing? What are they what actions are they taking to make sure that people of color, immigrants, uh, architects who who don't look like this particular gentleman actually where how are they represented by the election of ben and and you know it was interesting i was kind of looking through all of the different there were three individuals all white men and they do something very interesting over there when they're running for this they actually create websites for their candidacy and they have you know people who are nominating them and 
saying a lot of good things about them and, and their uh, their leadership, what have you. You know, it seems <laughs> that this president is really kind of very small minded when it comes to what he's actually looking to achieve. And I think by the end of his term, one of the things I thought was pretty laughable was which striking that this is actually an issue. I want to see more involvement by clients in post-occupancy evaluation and much more widespread use of REBA signboards in a hashtag credit for design campaign. So I looked that up, what that hashtag <laughs> credit for design campaign was. And apparently he's on this particular bent where he wants all buildings built by Reba architects to get notified or have a sign out in front of the, on the building. And even in this, so that the acknowledges the architect and even in, um, I think even in construction sign boards as well. So that's a big push of his. Um, that's something he wants to achieve in the first, in his term as president. I can't think of anything more small-minded than that. I mean, we have, we had this particular issue about a year ago with this organization and this is his, you know, his charge for it is to address this <laughs> as a major issue for architects over there in, uh, in uh, Reba Architects. So we've got our own issues over here in the AIA, but, you know, I think there's probably the same kinds of issues over there that we have over here. So um, at least we're addressing those. It seems like they need to dig a little deeper and find a, a better pool of candidates. Excellent. Thank you for being our inaugural ranter again. So the attack is, it's all about me. Pay attention to me is what the, the push to put the name of the architect on the building design poster or whatever is about, which is, which is great. I think architects deserve recognition, yeah. but in a, uh, in a, time and culture when we're hearing white men constantly saying, but what about me? Yeah. It just seems like a very weird, yeah, hill to, to plant your flag on as a president for Reba. That's bizarre. Speaking of white men who have enormous egos, um, I want to <laughs> talk a little bit about Frank Lloyd Wright. <laughs> Excellent. Rant away, Donna. But what I really want to talk about is this really wonderful brief article on the, the theme of domesticity for the month that uh, Julia Ingalls wrote called Working Life Does Taliesin's Collaborative and Pedagogical Domesticity Suit the 21st Century? It's a lovely little article and it's got so many quotable lines. I'm not really going to quote from it because I think I'm going to tweet them all later. But my rant about this would be, how could anyone possibly say that an architecture student learning how to build with their own two hands and deal with the materials of building, that that's not valid in the 21st century. I mean, that's that's what we do. You know, architecture is a material art. And as someone who came out of Cranbrook, where not only very, you know, we're very similarly to Taliesin, not only did we build things full scale in the studio and out on the campus, we also had this kind of dinner culture, much like they have at Taliesin, where we would all cook together and eat at the same table. And when guests came, the students would cook for them. How can anyone say that that is not an appropriate way to consider learning about how to be an architect who serves a society? I mean, that, that, that I just, I, I can't believe that it's even a question that building something with your hands is not educational. So that would be my rant um, <laughs> about it. But the article itself is absolutely beautiful. And I think in terms of domesticity and how we actually live with one another in a material world, I think it's a, it's a really beautiful article. Ken, do you want to uh, rebut my, my rant? No, I... It's all I, about SketchUp, right? Yeah, no. <laughs> that was the, one of the things I really severely lamented about my education is that the uh, the hands-on experience. I, and mostly I looked at it as a failure of my own seeing what was possible and what I really, what was needed for my own growth as an architect. You know, here's the rant that I could go along with you on this is that, you know, instead of working in a, in a dumb architect's office and you're summed off, 
which is a complete waste of your time. It's a complete waste of anyone's time. You're not going to learn anything in an architect's office in the six weeks that you have off during the summer. Go work at a construction site. Just push a broom. Do it for free. I mean, you're going to be working for them, working for an architect for free, and you're not going to get any experience out of that. Go push a broom. Uh, move concrete around, move uh, bricks, pick up a, you know, and I didn't see that. I didn't see that until I got some distance from it to go, wow, that was a mistake. And, you know, I was a little short-sighted and, and didn't see that. And I, I didn't work for an architect or all the summer stuff. I went and did other things. I worked part-time at other local jobs, but, but probably because I kept trying to drive at trying to get into an architect's office to actually do work during the summer. So, and it wasn't an opportunity that was really uh, available for me as a, a student in New Jersey. So I never saw the other. I'm like, wow, it completely makes sense to me. So I think absolutely. I think the profession needs, it's, you know, not drawing details, not building those stupid, like, you know, three quarter scale models in school, go to a site and just- Or crappy renderings. Stupid crappy <laughs> renderings. You can't, you know, practicing your skills at rendering is only going to lead to one good thing. And that's going to be you as a renderer at an architect's office. But if you want to learn how to build, right. go in, and work on a construction site. I, I would go back in time today still and, and would, I would, I would tell that yeah. to myself then and, and I, would, I would do that. Yep. What about you, Amelia? Do you have a rant? I, I have a happy rant. Yes. Yeah. Happy so, rant. <laughs> so a couple months ago when we were covering the Venice Biennale, we started finding this interesting Twitter account that kept popping up in the conversations happening around the Biennale. And at first we didn't really know what to make of it. The account is called Birds of Venice, at Birds of Venice. And over the last few months, I'm delighted to announce that this has become one of my most favorite Twitter accounts. It is this <laughs> satirical, basically a parody architecture critic slash curator account. The bio reads, preservationist, father, and curator, in that order. Opinions aren't my own, it takes a village. And so this anonymous person, whoever, is tweeting from pretty much every major architecture and art curatorial event. So think like Venice Biennale, art fairs, that kind of thing. And has just been an absolute delight in my feed of just like kind of skewing all of these classic think pieces that come out of architectural journalism, as well as the kind of classic means of um, art curation and architecture and the kind of themes and buzzwords and stuff that crop up. And it's just really lovely to have this kind of splash of irreverence dashed into everything else. I will say that I really would love to know who this is, but I also find it incredibly <laughs> important that these types of accounts can retain their anonymity and continue doing the good satirical work that they're doing. So that nothing questions that. And I was also really tickled by the fact that I'm pretty sure their current profile picture is of Peter Thiel, which of course is not actually them. <laughs> or is it? We can't know for it sure. It might be. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Thiel's doing a great job of kind of lovingly trolling Archonnect. So I would just direct everyone who's like, whether or not you're an artist or a curator or interested in that field, there's a great deal of fantastic skewing of the art architecture kind of mindset. And I will fully back whoever or whomever or however many people are involved in the creation of this account. So that's my happy rant um, for this first installment of the, the rant segment. It's a good one. Can I read one tweet? It's a pinned tweet of his. Because yeah, I, I have a sense of, I, I think I might know who this is, but I won't say. I can't tell people I'm a curator without also making a jerk off motion so they know I at least have some dignity through self-awareness. <laughs> yes. Perfect. It is lovely God. things like that. Yes. It's my favorite Twitter account lately. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Seriously. I find myself responding to him and I'm assuming him because of the father designation. I find myself responding to his tweets more and more than I do to anyone else's. He's hilarious. 
And there's definitely like there's this fun the game that you can play of trying to identify at least what generation of kind of mm-hmm. savviness this person comes from or whoever they are, because there's certain like either subtweets or hashtags being used that kind of reference either like highly adolescent themes that are otherwise happening on Twitter or trending topics that you're just like, no actual architect would give a hoot about this. And so the idea of being just like bringing in as much as possible of the popular culture and silly things like those cascading emoticon memes of like parentheses face putting on sunglasses. Just it's, Mm -hmm. it's fantastic. Um, It's a bright of sunshine in my, in my otherwise very gloomy social media (laughs) existence. So Birds of Venice, if you get a huge Twitter following bump, from this podcast uh, rant, I would like you to at least give our Connect credit at the very least, if you're listening out there. And not just with a jerk off motion. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know, I don't, you know, whatever it is, it's like, I'm sure it's en- it's endearing if it's coming from you. It will be. Absolutely. <laughs> totally agree. So that is our show for this week. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, we are at Arc Sessions on Twitter. And of course, you can always email us through connect at arcconnect.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. It is a massive help. You can also always be in touch through Twitter or email. Until next week, thanks everyone for listening. And thanks, Donna, again. Thanks. Good to talk with you. Bye, guys. Bye.